The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Hegemonic Victimhood Edition. It's Wednesday, August 29th, 2018. On today's show, Eighth Grade is a small indie movie about a subject both large and small, how teen and tween lives now take place in the limina of real life as it connects to social media. Limina. And then Insatiable is the super controversial show on Netflix. It tells the story of an overweight girl whose life changes radically after she, through a series of weird happenstances, becomes thin. Is it daring an edgy premium TV or the smug, fat-shaming trash its critics say it is? We discuss with its lone internet defender, June Thomas, the beloved June. Uh, Will she stay beloved? And finally, toxic fandom and the case of Kelly Marie Tran. Joining me today, the OG3 Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Um, how are you guys doing with the summer as it dribbles between our fingers and into oblivion and we <laughs> persist in the limina between <laughs> lush verdancy and the oncoming icy death? My aunt and I have this tradition at the end of the summer when it starts to get dark earlier and earlier and you come out of a building at 758 and it's the gloaming, it's the end of the gloaming, it's almost dark, where we just text each other and say, it's so dark, like earlier and earlier (laughs) every night. (laughs) And that is how I feel. Am I the only person who hates summer and can't wait for it to end? It's my least favorite season, especially in the city. I'm just longing for the days of tights and sweaters and and school starting once again. I mean, I say this as a lover of the shoulder seasons and and who lives in, like, I'm gripped with fear that... (laughs) I just got shoulder seasons. I was like, are you wearing, like, those open tops? Cold shoulder tops? I still don't get it. What are the shoulder seasons? Like, the betweens, the fall and the spring. The seasons of the transitional seasons of fall and spring, right? And I... I, He's an equinox guy, not a solstice. So the other other seasons are the arms or what? Just just move, flow forward, you you know? through the metaphor into my larger point, which is that I lived gripped in, I, I, I'm gripped in fear that they're going to disappear thanks to climate change. And so I cherish them. Um, however, I love both summer and fall. I just hate the limina in between. I'm challenging you people to challenge me on the word limina. <laughs> I have never heard limina before. I mean, liminality, yes, but what, that's the Latin plural of something? I have never heard it used or seen it written. I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm using it correctly, but I'll let our listeners, if seems, any, are left at this It seems point. like a plausible coinage for Borderlands. I'll allow it. You'll allow it. Okay, good. All right, should we move forward? Past the limina of the show between the intro and the segments? Yes, let's. Into the arm. From the shoulder to the arm to the scapula. Let's get to um, the torso it, of this show. There we go, torso. Thank you. All right, well, moving on. Kayla is an only child living with her single-parent father, a well-meaning and loving goofus who struggles to penetrate his daughter's protective silences. Kayla spends a lot of time connected to social media and almost none actually bricks and mortar socializing. She makes YouTube advice videos that no one watches or almost no one watches, but we understand she's speaking, I think, to herself, trying to psych herself up, trying to make her social self real and concrete. We follow her through her eighth grade world at once radically ratcheted down by social anxiety 
at the same time massively scaled up via technology. Uh, it's a really interesting, sensitive portrait of this limina of this time in a young person's life. The movie's written and directed by YouTube veteran and stand-up comedian Bo Burnham. It stars Elsie Fisher as Kayla and Josh Hamilton as her hapless if well-meaning dad. All right, let's uh, let's listen to a clip. She's a different generation than us. She's, she's right not a to different generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us, I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us felt like fucking 50 years old. It's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like, on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kayla, you're not different than us. <laughs> yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? All right, Dan, I'll start with you. Uh, that's both a uh, representative clip in the movie and that Kayla doesn't really speak, but it's unrepresentative in that there's a lot of dialogue. I mean, a lot of this movie is actually quite, quite, it's so intensely focused on this antisocial kid that a lot of it's um, very sparse in its uh, spoken words. A lot of it's spent in the kind of you know, supernal glow of uh, the laptop screen in a dark uh, early teenager's room. Um, what'd you make of this picture? Oh, I love this movie so much. I really, really am happy that we're talking about it finally, although it opened a little while ago, because I feel like for this movie not to be on my top 10 list for 2018, I would have to see 10 masterpieces between now and the end of the year. It's just so beautifully realized. It's a very impressive first film for a stand-up comedian to suddenly turn around and, you know, cast this indie movie with all these unknown young, really young actors. They're actually middle schoolers that are the age, they are the age that they're supposed to be in the movie. And to have it come out with this degree of, of success is really kind of astounding. I just absolutely loved it. And I agree that that clip, while funny, and I'm glad we used it because you've got to hear some dialogue in a clip, is not representative of the mood of the movie, which is very uh, internal. It is frequently funny. It's not that it's uh, anguished or something, but it is. it takes place really inside the brain of this confused, unpopular, and extremely self-conscious and awkward eighth grader. And uh, and it just, I feel like it captures that so extraordinarily well that an eighth grader could see it. And in fact, Slate ran a wonderful piece interviewing video interviews with eighth graders who have seen the movie responding to it. A parent of a kid around that age could, could get a lot out of it. And really just anyone who's lived through middle school is going to identify with, with parts of this movie. And so, yes, um, loved it. Okay, well, that is a Dana Stevens rave. I mean, she'd have to see ten masterpieces to knock it off her top ten list. Um, Julia, do you uh, do you agree? I also loved this movie. Um, there's a quality of watching this movie that's like time travel. It's like forces you to confront the uncertainty of self that is being an early teen, um, and. It draws a portrait of what that uncertainty of self feels like at this moment full of new technology and new ways of connecting to and following and understanding and appreciating both your peers and like what it means to be a person. But I particularly loved three things most about the movie. I, I agree that the direction is astonishing, like really so accomplished for a first film. I loved the way the movie used music, which is somehow witty without being um, cutesy or cutesy. something. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, like there are all these hilarious cues, the, the way the sound drops in and out as she contemplates like her, <laughs> her perfectly cast eighth grade crush object, this like scrawny 
slip of a kid with a thatch of hair who you could totally see why he would be an eighth grade lust object, but it's just like very comical to adult eyes as a lust object. Um, anyway, the, the direction is amazing. Thing two, I really love that this movie engages with how technology figures in the lives of young people today without being a Luddite screed. Like it's the point of the movie is not if only we'd all unplug from our phones, life would be better. The point of the movie is being a middle schooler sucks and it sucks in this particularly interesting technologically inflected way right now. But it is an immemorial story. And then the third thing I really loved is the the theme of relating to your future and past selves and sort of the way that you become a friend to your future and past selves and like talk, talk yourself through your life. One of the ways in which she uses technology, which is really poignant and maybe less toxic than some of the other ways, um, is that she she's this shy, friendless girl uh, has a... YouTube advice channel. She's a vlogger where she's giving people advice on kind of how to be as as a teen. Um, and of course, it's heartbreaking because she doesn't really know how to be as a teen and she's so confused about it. And she's she's play acting at a kind of confidence and authority and and position of having figured it out that she hasn't arrived at in her own life. Um and the way in which technology gives her the tools in, in those scenes and in a couple of other scenes to try on different selves and try to understand her relationship to herself um, were really subtle and nuanced and fascinating and profound. And a, a huge mm. part of that, I think, is Elsie Fisher's performance. It really is one of those mind melds between creator and performer when you see what Bo Burnham gives Elsie Fisher to do and how she does it. Because in those scenes, when you see her vlogging, for example, it's it's really hard to, to believe that she's reading a script. There's so every sort of um and like is placed so precisely. And her sense of creating it as she goes along and having no idea what she's doing is is so visceral that uh, that it's actually amazing that it's a created object and not a found one. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I, I more or less agree with both of you. I mean, I, Julia, I really fixed upon the second thing that you were talking about, the movie's uh, perceptiveness, sensitivity to what it is to grow up with social media almost already integrated, not just into your environment, but into your sense of selfhood, like you're a cybernetic self now. And there's no Luddite passage back to before that happened that we can see. And the movie manages to show the pervasiveness of it in a highly specific individuated life, right? I mean, it shows its pervasiveness in all of the middle school kids, um, but but it really focuses on what it means to escape into a laptop after your official bedtime um, and, and attempt to both lose and make a self, maybe, as you surf um, the internet. And um, But it does this it, it non-didactically, which is... A very hard thing to do, I think, um, especially kind of early on in the adoption of a new technology. And there were many, many things I loved about the movie, including the performances, uh, the direction. Uh, I loved the movie. But one thing I wondered throughout, and I wonder if I can get some sympathy for this, is she is such an inchoate creature. And I love that she's attempting to communicate with her possible future self, right? It's it's this kind of existential bootstrapping where you imagine yourself in the future as a different kind of being. And it's that being that grabs you by your hand and pulls you up um, into this new self. And I thought that was 
quite beautifully and subtly done, but she is so inchoate that the sparsity of dialogue occasionally made me feel the movie was a little thin in a way, that the excuse for the movie being a little inchoate and underdrawn was her social anxiety and silence. And so every conversation she has, she's scarcely able to articulate anything. And that left me wondering who this future self was that's pulling her. Like, what's that kernel of selfhood that this girl has that's so much deeper and more essential than her social awkwardness and you know, what every grown-up knows about the social landscapes of the very, very young is that they're obliterated as you move forward through life, right? And and we know that watching this movie. But I didn't see that, like, what's that thing about this girl? Is it in those YouTube videos? Maybe it is. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to lodge any criticism against this beautifully realized first movie. But to the extent I have one, maybe that would be it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's the criticism that underpins the Richard Brody review in The New Yorker, which he was pretty grumpy about the film and pointed to that exact sort of gormlessness, shapelessness of her self and uh, saw it as, as a flaw rather than an asset and also suggested that the world is a little bit underdrawn. Like, where exactly are they? And there are some observations about her house versus the popular girl's house, but the, the I, I think he he felt a similar kind of thinness to to what you're describing. I didn't find his critique totally persuasive, but he did compare the film to Lady Bird uh, and just say, like, you know, that's another movie about a specific young woman who's so grounded in a family, a community, a town, a relationship, a moment in life. This this movie doesn't stack up. And and that did make me think for a moment. It's really true. You have a sense of who Lady Bird is, who that Saoirse Ronan character is, and, and kind of how she's posturing and trying to emerge from her family into the world. But I'm not sure that's a fair critique of this other moment of transition. Like, in some ways, this, the fairer comparison for Lady Bird would be Olivia, the senior who Kayla meets on her shadow day at the high school she's about to enter and whose voice we heard in the clip, right? That's the moment where you've you've figured out a self, you're trying it on, you're not sure if it's really you yet, but you've got a bunch of postures and, and um, a sense that you've like made it through teenhood and you're trying to figure out how you're going to go be an independent person. And this transition from childhood into teenhood is a more shapeless one. I mean, we don't have a huge sense of what her interests and passions are. I think about my self and how shy and self-conscious I was at that age and how fraught with peril social interactions seemed to be. I mean, I remember the, the, the scene, there's a scene where she goes to a party where like the mom has forced the popular girl to invite her to a party and just like the um, existential level of the dread about going to this place where she has no friend and no anchor and no you know, just just the like terror of it. The emotional stakes felt a hundred percent right to me. Like, and communicated mm, through music, as you were saying, Julia, and yeah. sound design in a way that was really inventive. Right. Um, and we do we get a little bit of a sense from her. Um, she's like a time capsule box that she buried at the beginning yeah. of sixth grade of what her childhood interests were, but they're they are kind of generic, right? It's like Lego, Harry Potter. She's got a Hamilton calendar on her wall. Um, you know, there there isn't a sense that she's an obsessive X or Y or Z or that her kind of tastes or passions are um, shaping her 
selfhood. On the other hand, that existential question of like, will anybody ever like me and will I figure out how to be a a human in the world is kind of the overriding question when you haven't figured it out. Like there's not a lot of time to like do bonsai pruning or whatever. I love bonsai pruning is the idea of the quirk that would really have set her apart. Sorry, I saw some bonsai. I'm, I'm, never mind. More on that later. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would respond to Brody's criticism by saying that, that the, the analogy between this movie and Lady Bird is completely off. Lady Bird is a buildings roman. Like it's a it's a high school oh, movie absolutely. in a particular genre of high school movies. To me, this is a much more original movie than Lady Bird, even though Lady Bird is extremely accomplished at what it tries to do. This movie, as you say, Julia, is trying to do something that's much more inchoate. And you may go into this movie thinking, oh, I know what this movie is. It's the movie about the unpopular girl. That's the sort of school genre movie. And it really is not that. And I find a great boldness in it being not that, that it's not about the cool quirkiness of this girl who's going to set, her, set herself apart from everyone else with her bonsai pruning hobbies, <laughs> that it really is just mm-hmm. about discovering yeah. what it is to be a person. And uh, and in fact, if she was saddled with a bunch of quips and quirks and specialness that set her apart from other kids, it wouldn't be the same movie because this really is about a person mm-hmm. trying to figure out, do right. I deserve to be loved just for being here? Yeah, uh, beautifully said. All right. Well, I find myself completely convinced. Um, I now love this movie as much as you two did. Um, All right. Well, eighth grade, it may not be playing near you. It's probably towards the end of the uh, end of its run. If it is, you will soon be able to find it probably streaming. But if you can catch it in theaters and please let us know what you thought of it. I also suspect we may hear about it again when awards nominations comes out, come out, because there's a, two performances in this movie, Elsie Fisher as the lead and Josh Hamilton as her dad, that are just, this seem to me like shoe-ins for sort of the indie candidate for at least mm-hmm. independent spirit type awards, if not the fancier ones. Well, also most popular Oscar, right? Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> least talkative uh, wins most popular. <laughs> Sounds good. I love it. Um, all right, moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, I'm assuming we've got uh, some business. Julia? Thanks, Steve. In Slate Plus today, we will be sharing memories of our 13-year-old selves in honor of eighth grade. Ouch. (laughs) Look forward to that. (laughs) To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. Insatiable is the new Netflix would-be black comedy about a young high school girl, Patty, who after a chance encounter that ends in traded blows, has her jaw wired shut, goes on a liquid diet, loses a ton of weight, and becomes by traditional American high school standards at least beautiful. Her new svelte hottie self is mentored by Bob, a disgraced lawyer with a Svengali fetish for young beauty pageant contestants. I made none of this up, and no brain cells were harmed in the writing of this uh, copy. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. I wanted to let go of Fatty Patty, but after all those years of torture, she was in me like a demon. Now, tell me what you feel about what you see. I don't know. Close your eyes. Tell me the truth. Like I don't deserve you, your support, 
You think you deserve to be punched? You didn't. You were the victim, a bullion of society. He was right. I was fat. I was out of control. You were sick. You were scared. I still want to eat all the time. And why don't you? Because. I'm afraid if I get fat again, you won't think I'm beautiful. You are beautiful. Inside and out. You came through hell and lived to tell about it. And when you were on that stand, you were going to find that voice. So you never have to eat over it again. Oh, my. All right. Well, we're joined for the segment by June Thomas. June, you uh, surely you've got some uh, elaborate new um, job <laughs> title. Yeah, I'm actually now. No, it's the same title as ever, Stephen. No, no. I'm still basically my boss. <laughs> <laughs> she was trying to be tactful. But... <laughs> uh, not exactly a full poo bar, more just poo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. Well, lead me out of the hundred acre wood here. I'm going to read you some uh, headlines from our um, reading packet today about the TV show Insatiable. Netflix Insatiable is somehow both obscenely cruel and terminally dull. That's a tough one. That's the seven ten split right there. I think <laughs> Insatiable is dreadfully unappetizing. Netflix Insatiable is an utter disaster. I, June, tell me, I, I think those are pretty representative opinions about this show, and yet you like it and defend it. I love the show, and actually, this was one of the rare occasions, like, I'm going to say something that nobody has ever thought of before, but, like, people have different responses and opinions about culture, about art. But, <laughs> yeah, but right like, and wrong. in this case, I read the reviews, and I just, it was as if it, I was... Through a looking glass, it, you know, Constance Grady of Vox said it was simultaneously one of the cruelest and most poorly crafted shows I've ever seen. And to me, this is not, that is not only, not only does that not comport with my response to the show, it's also, I just think it's ridiculous. This is not a cruel show. This is one of the most loving and humane shows that I've seen. It is not by any means perfect, but it is not in any way cruel. It's quite the opposite. And I just... I honestly don't understand why how critics of experience and taste, you know, not children, honestly, can't see that it is made in a very different tone than the way they seem to be treating it. It seems like the response to the show pivots on this really important question of um, of tone. I mean, you just have to, it, the question is whether you understand its treatment of, you know, fat phobia, homophobia, sexism, all of these things that are running rampant in the world of the show, right, in the world of the characters of the show, whether you understand those to be the subject of critique and uh, satire, or whether you understand them to be just um, things that the creators are obliviously ignoring. Right. And there also seems to be this split where, um, in general, where, and there are a few, a few other people on your side, June, mm-hmm. including here at Slate, where if you understand those things as satire and critique, then you like the show. And if you take them sincerely, you you hate the show. I would put myself somewhere in the middle as someone who understands them as satire and critique and yet does not really think the show succeeds at that satire and critique. But yeah, to go into this show thinking that this is a show for teenagers about real teenage experience seems to me misguided. I don't think that this is even aimed at the audience that a lot of the, the critics you just cited seem to think that it's aimed at. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Toward the end, there's something that happens, um, which I guess I won't spoil. It happens around episode nine or 10, which is so adult. I mean, none in the sense of it being about sex, although since this is a Netflix show, it is, you know, uncensored. They swear they they don't really do things. I mean, there's kissing, but there's not really, you know, rumpy pumpy. But 
they there is a relationship <laughs> evolves that is that, that honestly is the first time that I've seen this kind of relationship be negotiated and it is not done in a like it's it's done in a jokey way because that's the tone of the show but I think there is absolute commitment to people being honest and finding you know finding love in their lives and how they can best rep, you know express their the love that they feel for people and I, again I just don't get the 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 lack of understanding. I am of two minds about the show. I mean, one thing we didn't quite highlight in our setup, and one of the factors that I think contributed to the way in which it was reviewed, is that the show's initial reception in the public came when they launched a trailer for the show, which I think really emphasized the transition between this main character in the flashback fat suit that she's wearing in the pilot and her new bodacious post jaw wiring shut self and somewhat winkingly talked about this pageant transformation. And there was a cacophonous response online suggesting that the very act of telling the story was just like a bunch of fat shaming garbage and how could Netflix and who's running the store over there and wah, 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 you know, there was just (laughs) irritating Internet response to that. Um, And then... There are a lot of people who, as with such things, said, wait, watch it, wait, watch it, wait, watch the whole thing. Come on. And then the the set of headlines you read, Steve, were from a lot of people who are like, OK, I watched it and yeah. it it really is bad and it stinks. And I I think you're right, June, that this show is not uh, a tale of like how bad it is to be fat and how great it is to not be fat anymore. And it it shows that review it like that Vox review, just completely misunderstand it and don't have much value. I mean, just the kind of scolding response to culture is irksome. Um, Certainly in response to something that's more nuanced as this show is. Uh, The other thing that I think is radical and somewhat confusing about this show and I think maybe driving some of the critical responses that this show posits that it wasn't fun to be fat. Being fat didn't make her feel good. And she has a lot of rage and anger uh, and confusion about herself and the difference between being fat and being skinny Mm -hmm. and the world. And she does a bunch of poisonous, toxic, horrifying things with that rage once she gets skinny and I could see how someone who wanted to take an essentialist view of the character was like, how dare you suggest that every overweight person has a rageful, murderous, venomous being inside. Right. But, you know, as our our uh, culture Gabfest pantheon heroine Taffy Brodesser Ackner wrote in a great essay a couple of years ago, like the the emotional experience of dealing with your weight, managing it, thinking about it is like something that is hugely on the minds of a, a, a significant number of Americans and is very underexplored in culture. I mean, it, it comes up on This Is Us, like there's an overweight character whose relationship to food and eating is part of what the show explores. But it is it is emotional terrain that like exists and is a significant portion of, of you know, American emotional experience and is underexplored in the culture. And the notion that a character who has this trajectory could be... A like vengeful, incoherent bitch 
shouldn't be off limits. Exactly. And this is a 17-year-old who has been bullied and essentially tortured for 17 years, who has a horrible family life, who has a good friend who she appreciates, uh, but there are complications. Like, she is struggling throughout the show to be a good person, but she has a lot of feelings that were created in an era when she was mistreated. And I think the it's and it's and it's all done in this kind of satirical camp style. So it, yes, there there are things that are kind of hard to take, but I just again I I agree with you. They shouldn't be off limits. It's and and mm-hmm. it's funny to me. It's it and it's not not laughing at fat people. That is like the idea that that is what this show is about is just a joke to me. Right, but you started your defense of this by saying that you know essentially there are different and varied subjective responses to works of culture. So we've done the objective spade work of figuring out that maybe the show is complex and, and self-aware about the uh, politics and emotions uh, of uh, psychology of being overweight um, in a society that enforces you know, modes of self-loathing on individuals, um, especially when it comes to eating and appearance. Okay, noted, stipulated, right? That's That's you know, there's 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 a degree of intelligence and sensitivity in the making of the show. It's not fucking funny. Oh my god, that's the problem with the show. Here's my subjective response. It's incredibly broadly drawn. Its satire doesn't land. None of the characters strike me as remotely real. Um, it's inane. It's self congratulatory in its juvenile worldview. Um, I, I I never thought I would write the words John Ritter Man K in my notes while watching a show. It's like it just isn't any good. That's the problem with the show. See, I to me, I disagree completely. Like I went into this show because our esteemed colleague uh, Daniel Schrader came in one day and and talked about how he was watching and living the show. And I'm like, no, this show has gotten terrible reviews. No. And so I went home and watched it. And the first, ep- you know, honestly, the first episode is by far the weakest. And I wish that they had set up the transformation scenario with more, I don't know, with more skill, honestly. Um, but... Once that first episode is through, especially, I was laughing all the time. I was laughing out loud. And yes, it is. It's to me it, to call it. Well, I can't remember the exact uh, magnificent bit of vocabulary you use, Steve. But like, it is not juvenile to me. It's the opposite. It's like it plays. It draws upon the rich kind of history of shows made for young people that old people like me, you know, inhale uh, like uh, kale. But um, but it also I laughed my ass off and I thought it was I I thought not only was it congratulating itself for being smart but I thought that it was smart and and silly and I guess I, you know again I like silly things maybe that's my British upbringing but the fact that this revolves around a pageant called Miss Magic Jesus I mean yeah <laughs> you got to be ready to to smirk at that if, and if if you don't think that's funny then yeah you're not going to find this show funny but I did. I think if you like Ryan Murphy, I mean, this show has been has been called sort of Ryan Murphy light or or Ryan Murphy that doesn't quite get pulled off as someone who's not a big fan of Ryan Murphy shows. But I understand. But I can place them in the culture. I see where the humor lies, even if I myself don't respond to it. Would you agree, June, that it's sort of in that universe? I mean, definitely it's in that universe. I and there are some of the show's flaws, which I absolutely concede exist within it, are very um Murphibian or whatever that term would be. <laughs> because, for example, 
it forgets things and it like it's it starts more plot strands than it really has the capacity to deal with and it it Ryan Murphy typically is in his comedies or whatever we call the shows like Glee will have characters who are meant to be so outrageous you know that they would be in prison within 5 minutes just you know f- just for sp- what they say much less what they do and i didn't think and there were a couple of characters Dixie for example uh is someone who is really hard to find anything good to say about her but there weren't there weren't so many of those just absolutely corrupt cruel characters that are present in Ryan Murphy to my eyes anyway one show that it actually reminded me a lot of in a funny way is friends from college which is the Netflix show that I inhaled that um that is of dubious merit but addictive watchability I'm also a fan um and there is this kind of like knuckleballing quality to the tone of these shows where it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like it just comes hovering towards you in this like mystifying manner um, and uh, not necessarily uh, skillful manner. You know, this this show is like a stew of Ryan Murphy, sort of everybody's outrageous and campy. Crossed with like Riverdale, like there's a bunch of romances you're supposed to root for. Crossed with um, almost the the Mindy Kaling show, like where every character is sort of disposable and you'll, they have like a plot line for a, a episode and a half. And then it's like, psych, never mind. Or a sincere emotional relationship develops between Patty and uh, 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 Coralie, the character played by Alyssa Milano. Nice to see Alyssa Milano, actually. Um, and then is just abandoned like 20 minutes into the episode. Um, so there's a little bit of the kind of soap quality like teen soap mixed with ryan murphy which obviously i guess glee had um except for that the characters are also flimsy that you the the rooting stakes that power what it is to root for a soap are feel wobbly and you can't trust them so i i i the show just gets more and more sincere and sweethearted as it goes along in a way that um I could see why you would devour the whole thing and get into it, but I can't say that it seems excellent. Maybe some of my standing for the show is just like, are you all out of your minds? Uh, you know, it's, it, it is that kind of response to the initial criticism. And, you know, it's not everyone. Um, you know, Troy Patterson, I would say, gets it. Uh, he had a, a lovely Pattersonian review in NewYorker.com that I thought, he, you know, he, I think, correctly assessed the tone. Um, but yeah, I, I it's not. Is it perfect? No. When there's a thousand things thrown at the wall, I would say of those thousand, about seven hundred are to my taste. That leaves quite a few things that are not to my taste. But I still love the stew, as you called it, Julia. And it seems worth mentioning because we haven't yet that the creator, Lauren Gusses, the showrunner, has herself a history with eating disorders and takes this very seriously. This is not a question of a bunch of bro dudes sitting around a table saying, "Let's write a comedy about a fat girl and make fun of her." It's, I mean, in, in its intention, it is quite the reverse. Yeah, let me read a quote from her to to be completely fair. She said, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I can only tell my own story in my own voice. I understand why it's such a hot button topic. I'm angry about all those issues too. That's why I wrote the thing. That's why Patty's a rage monster character. That's embodying my rage at the way that these issues have been handled in society for so long. I get it. Every single person who is upset, I wanted to hug them and tell them I get it. June, as always, it's a complete pleasure to have you come in. Uh, And a delight, even though you're completely wrong, you're 
You're wonderful to have on the show. Why, thank you, Steve. (laughs) Moving on. Kelly Marie Tran was born in San Diego, California. She became a successful actress and improv comedian. And then, I mean, talk about a crowning moment, right? She's cast as Rose Tico in Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Uh, Here's another fact about her. Her parents are Vietnamese refugees. She's the first Asian American woman to be cast in a leading role in a Star Wars film. And this led to something utterly grotesque, a fanboy backlash. Uh, She became the target of online harassment. She has since withdrawn from social media, scrubbed herself clean of it. It is clean now, scrubbed of her. Uh, But she's also published a very moving first-person account of this experience in the New York Times. Let me read a little bit from it. It wasn't their words, it's that I started to believe them. Their words seemed to confirm what growing up as a woman and a person of color already taught me, that I belonged in margins and spaces valid only as a minor character in their lives and stories. And I think it's very, very important to read the end of the piece. She says, you might know me as Kelly. I'm the first woman of color to have a leading role in a Star Wars movie. I'm the first Asian woman to appear on the cover of Vanity Fair. My real name is Loan, and I am just getting started. So Dana, she ends on a, I mean, (laughs) it could not be more inspiring note. But the story is just, it's one that we've encountered over and over and over again. All the ingredients are here for the toxic cocktail, right? They're they're boys, there's fandom, and the internet coming together once again to make something um, grim. What'd you make of this story? Oh, well, I mean, I, I loved what she wrote, and I'm, I'm really glad that this was published because I, I feel that this has become something that's sort of ruining social media, really, for lots of women in film who appear in films who write about films who respond to films on the internet and uh and it's not just the star wars universe although that's probably the the biggest toxic ball of rage rolling through the corridors of social media but um there was also a huge backlash this week to ethan hawk saying something at a film festival interview about superhero movies that was mildly dismissive and uh you know he was kind of torn down and excoriated for that that's different because he's not being torn down for his you know his essential being in the way that kelly marie tron is for being an Asian woman. But there's this similar dynamic of how dare you touch my my precious commodity. And there's also this strange kind of victimization tone in, you know, a lot of this backlash that really reminds me of, you know, something that the right wing has been doing now. I mean, well before Trump, that the right wing has been doing for a generation of of turning their own hegemony into some kind of victimhood. And, you know, just performing that rhetorical gesture that we're all very familiar with of saying, oh, poor, poor persecuted me who has all of the power and uh, and money and uh, and leverage in this in this situation. So it's awful that this particular person was hounded off of social media, but it is also just a small part of an extremely toxic dynamic. I mean, I've been a part of it myself in a small way in in that, you know, you make a little wisecrack about Star Wars fanboys and RIP your mentions for the next three weeks. So I've now just decided to step away from that entirely and uh, and let those films exist. I will I will write about them as a critic, but I don't want to be engaging with individuals on social media about certain franchises. And that's that's a minor part of my life, but for someone who, like Kelly Marie Tran, who who starred in this movie, that's that's that has a huge effect on her life. Why should she have to retire and live in a closet and not be able to 
have fun online anymore because of her race and gender. It's just it makes me absolutely furious. And I don't know what there really is to be done about it. I mean, I don't think that the the franchise itself is asking for this in any way. Like Ryan Johnson's last film, which is the one that has been the most strongly pushed back against because of the in large part because of the way that it does feature women and people of color in the major roles is doing the opposite of inciting this kind of fandom response, right? I mean, it's trying to move away from it and and do other things with the franchise and mm-hmm. uh, and I guess the only thing to do is just ignore the trolls, but but if ignore the trolls means just go away and shut up if you're not male and white, then that's not much of a solution. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad we're talking about toxic fandom on social media, which I think is the sort of narrow, we've talked about fandom, we've talked about toxic fandom, we've talked about social media, but the sort of way in which uh, partisans of particular entities go on the attack, um, particularly against women and people of color, is becoming a real pattern and a really troubling pattern. And one of the great powers of social media broadly, and Twitter in particular, because of the way in which you can at people and like address your comments to people you don't know at all just by dint of their handle, um, is that it lowers the barrier to conversations, right? So this has been fruitful in the ways in which it allows underrepresented communities to post videos of police doing violent things and making make them the subject of national attention in a way that they might not have been if they'd been going through the usual gatekeepers and national newsrooms. Um, it also allows weirdo jerks who think that Ghostbusters shouldn't be remade with a bunch of funny women or, uh, you know, that making a Star Wars film that features women and people of color in starring roles is sacrilege to the franchise to to be heard in a way that their opinions does not warrant. Like it it makes it possible for gross people to use a bunch of racial slurs to describe trans performance and self uh, in the comments of her Instagram feed, which seems injurious and terrible for her, also then causes a whole bunch of media stories where various news outlets are kind of highlighting and quoting and repeating these disgusting comments which it's fair to do their news, but it's just somehow these disgusting troglodytes end up with this huge platform where there's so much awareness of their hate and then so much attention paid to their hate. And on the one hand, that seems really important, like in a world where all of the Hollywood stars are white, uh, you know, racist hate is probably not a huge part of it. Gendered, Gendered hate may be more so. Um, and the invisibility of that toxic racist response um, is a bad thing, right? Make, rendering it visible is probably useful and helps us fight it and helps people find ways to try to support Tran. Um, Ingu Kang wrote a great piece for Slate about a benevolent uh, social media response, which was fan art for Ro- hashtag fan art for Rose. And during the height of this, uh, toxic sludge on trans Instagram feed. Th- just a bunch of the broad community of Star Wars fans posted um, drawings and images celebrating Rose's character and how excited they were about her and, and tried to drown out the, the yuckiness. Um, so at, on the one hand, it feels important to understand the challenges that face these actors in these roles 
it feels useful to shine a light on what's disgusting in hopes of sponging it out. But it also feels like these idiot garbage heads should just be like alone in a basement with no one hearing them and just like (laughs) spew their sludge into a closet. And like, I'm just mad that I'm mad that that their voices are being so heard. Yeah, exactly. That it's being treated as some kind of argument. Like on the one side, there are people Mm -hmm. who want to remake Star Wars with no women on the other side. Like, why is that a side? (laughs) It's not a side. But I think both of you fucking nailed it i mean um let me throw it in a slightly different centrifuge and see what various parts separate out i mean i think on the one hand you have a business model now in movies and tv in which uh, shows and films uh, it's more like sports fandom than it is traditional movie or tv fandom um there's like this team uh you know your avengers your star wars guys you massively massively emotionally connect to it and, you know, even when it sucks, you shell out the money for the merch and the experience of going to see them. And this is why this is why sports teams have been, you know, essentially money printing presses uh, forever. Um, and uh, that's enormously lucrative and no one's abandoning it. Um, and then you have that as it connects to our obviously our contemporary politics, which is drilling into a sense of emasculation and self-dispossession on the part of of men, especially young men, especially young white men. And then you have that as it connects to, you know, this kind of primal Joseph Campbell chord that Star Wars from the beginning and explicitly according to George Lucas, um, you know, was trying to connect into and kind of vibrate um, this mythic sense of, you know, a lost abandoned semi-orphaned boy discovering that they have not just a vocation, but a kind of quest or a mission. I mean, this deep sense of quest narrative, which will suddenly give an inchoate and kind of meaningless life uh, coherence and meaning and purpose. That's the power of much of the Star Wars story. It has a lot in common now with Jordan Peterson, who's, you know, uh, manipulating this same um, special and very deep appeal to, uh, I think, to boys or the boys that are still, you know, predominating in the character would be men. Um, And so you're talking about highly manipulative commercial and political practices surrounding the underdeveloped sense of self that men are endemically suffering from. Um, And it just seems to hit its highest pitch with Star Wars. And that's the hard part there is that, is that, you know, Lucas knew what he was doing. He'd read Joseph, Joseph Campbell's, you know, hero of a thousand faces. He, he had, gone back and he'd watched Yojimbo and watched Shane and watched all of the primal cinematic, you know, masterpieces that tap into this. And he created something completely enduring in that universe. Um, And it's as a business, it's, 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 you know, subsisted on this proprietary, deep proprietary sense that its fans have over it. In the best way, it's co-written and co-created by its fans. That's what's kept it alive in the transmission from generation to generation. And it's just heartbreaking and awful that that exists so close to a form of social rage, which is itself a product of um, entitlement, um, uh, that it becomes racist and sexist. It's heartbreaking. Um, it's remarkable that this person is responding to it with the dignity that she is, and one hopes for. Uh, and also, by the way, the you know the people behind Star Wars, and and as far as I understand it, they've completely stood by her. They're not going to back down in the face of this. Um, and so maybe we're seeing the glimmer of something new. But right now, we're in this kind of horrible stew. 
Can we circle back to your sports fandom metaphor? Because it strikes me that that is hugely useful as a way to think about culture right now. Like, what are these toxic fans doing but complaining about management, right? Yeah. It's like a sports radio call-in <laughs> show. Like, can you believe yeah. what Joe Torre did? Blah, blah, yeah. blah. Like, it's 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 the the relationship to the IP supersedes the belief in the authority of the people who have been entrusted with carrying it forward into the future, which is fair. It's I don't know. I mean, the thing I come back around to as a journalist is how do you cover these forces? It is useful, I think, for the culture, for people to be aware of the fact that they exist, the ways in which they impinge upon the lives of the people that they impinge upon, uh, the the kind of fear and peril that this kind of online harassment can create for the people who are subject to it. Um, on the other hand, you know, reading this particular racist slur repeated in like 10 stories that we read about this, just like I can't believe some garbage nimwit typed those things on her feed. And now hundreds and thousands of people have also read those disgusting things like it. The, the, the I'm torn between the desire to cover and expunge this kind of stuff and the sinking sensation that in repeating this kind of stuff in an effort to cover it, you end up amplifying and over emphasizing the significance of these whiny losers. All right, let's let that be the last word, but I have to, before we go double back to Dana, to the uh, hegemony victimhood comment was was really so spot on. All right, great segment. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Nice. Nice little run there. Um, okay, I'm going to have two two quick endorsements today, one of them inspired by eighth grade. Uh, so in, in my research for writing a review of eighth grade, I watched some stand-up specials by Bo Burnham, the comedian, stand-up, YouTube sensation turned director whose first time movie it is. And uh, and he's really great. His stand-up is awesome. I mean, if you're, if you're a millennial, you already know this and you're snorting at how late I am to the Bo Burnham game. But he has a couple of Netflix specials that I think are still up right now. The latest one is called Make Happy. So if you see Eighth Grade and then Make Happy, his stand-up Netflix special, you will be even more surprised at the capacity of Bo Burnham because they're very, very different works and both explore sort of new arenas of the genre they're in. So his stand-up is is very uh, choppy, I guess you would call it. It's it's constantly tone shifting. It's extremely virtuosic. It involves sort of moving to different parts of the stage and jumping from a, a, a piano where he sits down and pounds out a kind of satiric pop ballad that he's written. And then in the middle of it, he suddenly breaks off and makes some sort of comment about how he can't go on with the song because he's only playing it so that you'll love him and then leaps to a different part of the stage and takes on a different character. It's very whiplash. Uh, some parts of it are... are cruel in a way, in a satirical way that eighth grade never is. Eighth grade seems a very, much more tender and sincere um, work. But you can tell that they're coming from the same sensibility of sort of interrogation of one's own selfhood and how one is creating it. There's also some social media critique worked into the show that, again, is not not Luddite, as in the case of eighth grade. So anyway, Make Happy on Netflix um, is a special worth watching if you want to explore the weird, wonderful mind of Bo Burnham. And my other endorsement, a very short one, is for an app called iNaturalist. Julia, this is actually way up your alley. Have you heard of iNaturalist? No. So I love that when you say it, it sounds like I, Claudius, like I, comma, naturalist, but it's a little I, like like iPhone. And uh, it's essentially Shazam for nature. It's such a great idea. It's it's like a botanical database that's connected to, you know, your camera. And uh, you can take a picture of a plant in nature and uh, an 
every time so far, it has recognized the plant and then connected me to a beautifully written description of its botanical properties that had links going out to other places. It's just it's just a beautifully designed informational app about plants. So especially if you're on a trip to a place with different vegetation that you're not used to and you're just curious about what that weird flower or cactus is, get iNaturalist. It's really, really fun to use. Uh, I'm mm. so excited. I'm going to download that. That sounds great. It does sound like the coolest thing. Yeah. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have a bevy of semi-related endorsements to Dana's endorsement. In fact, uh, one is that there's a similar app for birding called Merlin, where you can type in uh, your location and uh, I think it's called Merlin Bird ID is maybe the full name. But you can type in your location and the colors and the basic size. Um, and it'll give you a range of birds that you might have seen. I would say that it is not foolproof. Like it often points you to the bird that the, the obvious birds in the area, but I'm usually turning to it when it's not one of the obvious birds. And sometimes it's, you know, missing them or it, it's not a hundred percent, but as a baseline tool, like what was that thing? Um, it'll get you there pretty quickly, especially if you're in an area where you don't know the local fauna. So that is called Merlin Bird ID. App number two, Nature Communing app number two that I would like to recommend, making it three of the Nature Communion apps being recommended on this show today, is an app called All Trails. Have you guys used All Trails? Mm-mm. All Trails is like Google Maps for hiking trails. It's like if you can put, put the location that you are and it will show you the walking trails nearby. And I should stipulate that I've only used it a little bit. And so, I, you know... Anytime you're doing uh, satellite guided navigation of any kind, like uh, I make no assurances that you won't walk off a cliff or into a bear or anything because I have not had (laughs) like years of testing on this app. But just from uh, trying to I went on a trip to uh, Portland and the the coastal Oregon environs with my husband in early August and we were driving along um, a coastal highway and had to pull over at a roadside overlook because my husband had to take a phone call for work. And then I was kind of exploring the area uh, and trying to figure out where we might go for a scenic walk when he got off his call. And somehow the Internet Byways led me to All Trails, which is an app where you can type in your location and it will just tell you all the hiking trails nearby and give you a topographic map and the turn and then track you on that trail as you walk it. So I saw a bewitching path leading uh, thither and looked it up and was like, oh, this is a, you know, three quarter of a mile loop that's going to go to a coastal overlook. And then we walked it and it was gorgeous. All trails. Amazing. I think if you're like a remotely competent hiker, you've probably been using this app for years, but very happy to learn about it. Finally, my recommendation is Bonsai. <laughs> It all comes together. So uh, also on the trip to Oregon, we went to the Japanese garden in Portland, which is also near a rose garden in Portland, two lovely gardens. I think it's a little bit like being like, check out the Statue of Liberty when you go to New York. I want to claim no uh, cultural authority for having discovered that these two major tourist attractions in Portland exist and are good and worthy of the tourist attention they get. But this Japanese garden is very neat and extensive, probably the biggest and most Uh, scenic I've ever been to. And this particular summer, I'm not sure if it's always there, there was an exhibit of uh, maybe 10 or 15 bonsai trees ranging in age from maybe more than 300 years old to 40. And 
I'd actually never really spent much time in the company of prize-winning bonsai specimens. Like, you know, they, sometimes you can get like, there's a little twisted guy at the flower shop in the front that maybe you could buy. And then you see it in the movie on the desk of the, um, you know, mysterious Japanese businessman. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Like there's sort of karate kid, cliched ways in which bonsai is used in film. Um, Oh, my God. These trees were so gorgeous and strange and miniaturized. And like, what a fascinating art form. Either go to Portland and check out this bond slash bonsai exhibit and or just Google. Is there a good bonsai in my city? And go find it because... I don't know, it was like a, it's like dollhouse trees, but the years of human care and tending and the uh, strange interaction between humans and nature, a lot going on in those trees. Use your modern technology to discover nature and also discover where you can find how old-fashioned technology has been intersecting with nature for hundreds mm, of years. Okay, well, this is kind of amazing because my endorsement both dovetails seamlessly on what you just said uh, Julia, while also completely negating and refuting it. So I um, woke up early one morning in Maine last week and got my kayak out onto the water because the uh, Penobscot Bay was like, was sort of a silky black, completely smooth, waveless surface. And I it was one of those magic kayak mornings where everything is so still that you can just dip your oar in the water and you're sort of gliding through it effortlessly, just slicing through it um, like butter. And um, I took a little hook around into Ryder Cove, um, past John Travolta's dock, it's true. Um, and I went into the interior of the, um, it was high tide, so the tidal estuaries had kind of fingered out into the landscape as they do when the tide is high, and you can follow along in the kayaks. It was completely dead still and quiet with the exception of some bird life. And I turned around and I was coming back and I was really hoping to spot um, Travolta in the wild. Um, and as I'm kind of heading towards his dock, all of a sudden I see the seal head coming towards me about 35, 40 feet in front of me, uh, parting the water with his little snout. Um, and he finally sees me and he goes, blip, he goes right under the water. And I was like, holy shit, that's the first time I've ever really encountered a seal face-to-face -face like that. Um, and I'm sort of dipping my oar and moving, and I'm, I'm careful not to go into what I perceive to be his path. I'm not trying to push my luck in any way. And after, I can't remember, 30 seconds or a minute, I think, how long can this thing stay underwater? And all of a sudden, I hear it come, uh, I hear it surface about eight or 10 feet directly behind my boat. And I turn around and their eyes must magnificently dilate when they're underwater because it has these huge goggly eyes, a head the size of, I wouldn't quite say a bowling ball, not quite a bowling ball, but a fairly significantly large head. It was definitely an adult seal. And it's just brought its nose up above water, its eyes above water to study me and its nose above water to catch a breath. And we just go, we lock eyes like full on close encounter man and nature, Steve and Seal. And uh, and for about three Mississippi, we're just staring at each other. And so I trot out my, you know, the line, the you know, uh, my favorite line, which is, hey, baby. And it just goes with the most magnificent suctioning and sound. It takes its last breath and goes, 
underneath the water and the the sound effect was so distinctive it was like the sound guys added it in post you know and he disappeared and that was all i think as robert frost says um and um it was just it was so fucking primal and so satisfying it was the most amazing thing that happened to me but that's not my endorsement um every summer in maine i lie in a hammock and i read uh, a new installment in the ferrante quad Tetralogy or whatever tetralogy, and uh, I'm on number three. I'm not quite done. I'm only like fifty page from the end, though. What can I say? It begins. I'm one of those readers of Ferrante who believes that it begins as a work of total gripping uh, genius and and gets better and better. Right? Like I couldn't pick a favorite exactly because, to my mind, what the book does so beautifully and so successfully is begin with young people immersed in a situation that they don't know is unique and deeply provincial and incredibly fucked up and traces their ability to begin to see from their worldly and adult self gain perspective on 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 you know the pr- provinciality of of mobbed up naples and and so to me it just as a bu- and and it's a buildings roman it's the story of this person's growing into the person who can tell her own story fully it tells the story of her becoming the person who can write the novel that you're reading um it's a it's a perfect building this roman but it's also utterly unique to itself the third one is just fucking completely magnificent it is an indestructible um installment in the collective project of world literature it's it's it is going to install itself next to Joyce and Proust and Kafka and Beckett uh, and Emily Dickinson and um, Virginia Woolf and on and on and on and on. I, I think it's that good. Um, I, I I don't believe time will prove me wrong on this. Find a hammock, find a settee, find a fainting couch, but don't faint. Open Atlanta Ferrante if you haven't done it yet. It is remarkable. Ooh, number three is next up for me. I've only read the first two, so that's a that's a good. Oh my mid. god! Oh. And <laughs> you're here to reading it on vacation, Steve. I completely agree. I read the entire tetralogy that summer that I went to Japan, so I had two extremely long plane flights, and I remember looking forward to both flights. Like, finally, I'm going to be left alone to read. It's yes. one of those books. Yeah, I feel like I haven't yes. had the mental space to to read it. Although I'm currently, I just started Ball Four. Steve, you must have read this book. You mean the classic baseball? Yeah, memoir? yeah. Oh, that's awesome! Which <laughs> so I never funny. read. What led you to Ball Four? I don't know. We just I think we Jim Bouton. I yeah, love yeah. it. Well, I saw the Long Goodbye, which Jim Bouton is in, which I endorsed a couple um, uh, months ago, and then that led me to his career. And it's an old favorite book of a couple of trusted people I know. And uh, I think we picked up a used copy at a bookstore recently. I don't know. That's 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 where my nose is now. But it's also Amazing. it's really good. It's like 500 pages of baseball memoir. It remains to be seen whether I'm going to read the it's whole thing. It's a lot of big, ba- I mean, but Jim, you know what the thing about Jim Bouton, you know, is the distinctive thing about Jim Bouton? Apart from how you are choosing to say his last name? Like a guitar string twang? Say, you, ha- you have to say his name like you're Mike Pesca. You turn into Mike Pesca <laughs> when you say, G- you're reading Ball Four by Jim Bouton? <laughs> That's the thing? So it is the way you say yeah. the name. Okay. I think it is. But um, anyway, uh, I think we're done here, right? <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> I One day, our producer Ben's hand is going to fly off his wrist making the helicopter There's like gesture. a poignant and poignant beauty and fallibility to our system of you being the host of the show 
being the only person who can't see Ben and Ben making these like flailing <laughs> gestures that only Dana and I can see. And then sometimes we tell you about them and sometimes we just don't. There's a there's a you comms there's a comms problem in our setup. There needs to be a, some kind of sound that only Steve can hear that comes in when the helicopter gesture begins. <laughs> it should be like a chopper noise. Julia, I'm here for you at the corner of hegemony and victimhood whenever you need me. All right. Um, you're Julia Turner, and I say thank you, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do also have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and of course, the poo, putting the poo back in the bar, June Thomas. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and uh, thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thank you.